Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Lorraine Peck. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is stolen land. Treaty was never made in Australia. Today on the show, Lorraine Peck is a debut novelist whose life and career have taken her around the world, and today she's joining me to discuss her debut novel, The Second Son. Johnny Novak's a family man, a beautiful wife, a young son. His mum and dad live two blocks in one direction. His brother Ivan lives two blocks in the other. Johnny even works in the family business, although as the second son, he's always let his older brother do the heavy lifting. Then one evening around dusk, Ivan is gunned down in his driveway, a killing that threatens to erupt Sydney into all-out warfare. Join me as we discover Lorraine Peck's The Second Son. I am joined on Zoom by Lorraine Peck. Lorraine, thank you so much. Welcome to Final Draft. Thank you for having me, Andrew. It's great to be on Final Draft. I am um, I'm really interested to chat about this. I, I think one of the really uh, clever initial hooks you gave us was in your, well, it's not really your forward, it's sort of like an author's note at the very beginning where you let us know that this is a, a very contemporary novel, but of course, when you wrote it, you could not have possibly known that there would be a pandemic <laughs> shutting down Sydney and essentially shutting down much of what would have been the action. And you invite us to enjoy um, an open world. How did that throw you? And, and what were you? What were your sort of thoughts as you were writing this very open Sydney novel uh, and releasing it into a world that wasn't so open anymore? Yeah, it was it was weird actually, and it was uh, it all came up during, funnily enough, the final draft of the book, which uh, was the fourteenth draft, mm. uh, because this is the book I wrote learning to learning how to write a book. So of course, you know, it goes through a lot of different permutations before you get to a point where it's publishable, and. Uh, and and the question was asked. In fact, there are quite a few authors within the um, the Australian writing community whom I was starting to um, gather a little bit of a friendship with via social media, and we we're all kind of asking each other, "If you're in this situation, do you mention COVID or not?" And the general feedback was, "Do we really want to hear? It? Do we want to read about it as well? You know, we we read to entertain ourselves." So I decided I couldn't, I couldn't change it enough. Uh, it would just wouldn't work if I if I um, introduced COVID. And it was interesting. Around the same time, I was reading Chris Hammer's Trust, his latest one, where he just sort of drops in, which is set in Sydney mostly, and he just drops in every now and then, like breadcrumbs, um, something about the populace of Sydney still kind of being in recovery mode after the pandemic. And I thought that was a really nice way of, of doing it because it means over, like it's in, it's, it's behind us. 
but I still couldn't work out a way of doing it. So I just thought I'll just do an author's note up front saying, this is a coronavirus holiday for everyone. Enjoy the book. <laughs> I mean, invariably, our ourselves, our art will all go through this process of coming to terms with with coronavirus. And it is so it is so nice to enter a book and, and take a holiday from it for a moment. But I mean, given that this is a book that deals with some very specific topics, um, particularly around organized crime. I mean, I don't know what your research process was, but do you do you have a sense that organized crime is something that had to shut down and socially isolate? That feels like a really weird question. Like, are these are these people who are sort of like, well, guys, we're probably going to have to work from home and we're going to do all of our um, extortion <laughs> via Zoom? Oh, that's such a funny thought, isn't it? Uh, and and it actually has entered my thinking a little bit. Uh, whilst I've been writing the, the sequel, uh, and I still haven't come up with an answer. Uh, but, you know, I guess one of the reasons why we're fascinated by criminals and gangs and organized crime is uh, that they are, you know, criminals are outliers. They, they live and work outside our moral code. You know, they have their own set of ethics. They have their own codes of conduct. They have their own hierarchy, uh, but they want to win at any cost. So uh, you, they would be putting economic reasons bef- before health reasons for doing anything. So I think they would be utilising COVID to their best advantage. Mm. I end to see kind of a Reservoir dog style posse walking into the business that has to pay protection money and they all just kind of reach for their masks and it's just like we're taking yeah. <laughs> we're taking these off unless you give us the money this is this is not the second sun though we are we are speculating about another another novel set in in our covid world yeah. let's get let's get into the story of the second sun johnny novak's a family man He's got a beautiful wife. He's got a young son. His mum and dad, they live a couple of blocks away. His brother, Ivan, lives a few blocks in the other direction. Johnny even works in the family business. Although, as, as the second son, he's always let his older brother do the heavy lifting. Then one evening, around dusk, Ivan is gunned down in his driveway. It's a killing that threatens to erupt Sydney into all-out warfare. I love that there is so much about Johnny's story that is is innocuous, seem almost sweet until you get into the details. And the second son, it sits within a genre and a tradition of action thriller where the hero must risk everything and be greater than they previously known they could be. And yet you complicate this straight sort of hero quest enormously through your split narrative point of view that sees the reader vacillate between Johnny's gritty determination and Amy's suspicion that the whole house of cards is about to fall. And you, we literally have the two narrative points of view as we move from Johnny's first person to Amy's first person. The female point of view, it's enormously important to our understanding of the second son. Did you want to upend that more sort of traditional machismo of this sort of storytelling? It kind of came about organically, which is pretty much how the whole book evolved. I'm, I think you can, uh, apparently you can 
split authors into planners and pantsers. Uh, and, and I'm definitely a panther. I, um, I, I don't have any idea what's going to happen next until it happens next. And when I'm writing, it's like I can see it all on a screen happening in front of me and I'm just writing down what I can see. And writing uh, the first draft of The Second Sun, I do that while doing a course with a writer's studio in Sydney online called The First Draft Writing Course. And if there's anyone out there who's always wanted to write a book, which was me four years ago, it's a really great course to get you started because it does help you come up with a character and then take him on a classic hero's journey. So the first draft was absolutely written as a full-on action thriller in third person from Johnny's point of view. And then um, uh, as I started working on um, uh, on other drafts, um, I joined the, the Curtis Brown writing course in London online, thanks to Jane Harper's acknowledgement in the dry that set me on that path. And um, it was pointed out to me that uh, my female characters were cardboard. And it was a great action thriller, but, you know, the female characters really weren't showing up. And I thought, as an exercise, I'll just write one thing from Amy Novak's point of view, the wife, Johnny's wife. Johnny's beautiful, middle-class, nice Aussie girl wife who just happens to marry a gangster. Right? And so I wrote this scene about where she meets Johnny in a nightclub in Parramatta. And then they go to Croatia and, and so on. It's, it's just it, it's a, used as a flashback in uh, the early chapters. And that scene remained unscathed and is in the book. And it was, uh, everyone seemed to, all the other students really loved that scene. It's like, oh, everyone runs Amy. Okay. And then she just proceeded to take over half the book. So now jump cut to around the eighth draft. I'm now working with Penny Houston, the uh, senior editor at Tech Publishing, my wonderful publishing house. And she said, look, we really just need more Amy. We, we need you to kind of, even up the point of view. And I said, but, you know, Amy will slow it down because, you know, Johnny is all about the action. It's an action thriller. And she said, well, have you ever considered that Amy brings the psychological thriller to the piece? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I hadn't considered that. So then Amy became all about being... Her part of the story is, is she's telling a psychological thriller. So Johnny's part is action. Amy's part is psychological. And yet there is also a murder mystery running through it because um, Van dies at the front end of the book. Before the book even starts, John, uh, Johnny's eldest son, Ivan, is, is, um, is gunned down. So there's a murder mystery running through the book as well. So it's kind of uh, <laughs> three genres rolled into one. In fact, the best, easiest way to describe it I've found is to use Anna Downs, uh, the, the wonderful international best-selling author of The Safe Place. She wrote a wonderful review early on about uh, The Second Son and she called it a modern-day godfather. And that is a very easy way to kind of encapsulate what's going on it's about a crime family at heart and they have a very different family life to the rest of us 
it sounds like that first draft of The Second Son would have worked. It would have been pacey. It would have told a story. It would have been a very different story. And I think what really makes The Second Son pop is that you you split that perspective and you give us what so many of these types of thrillers don't give us. And it, it is that that other side. I want to get to family, though. You talked about family there, and family and tradition sit at the heart of the action of The Second Son. And again, this is a trope that you enormously complicate. We are familiar with the idea of the crime family or the the family that, that choose each other, sort of drawn together by the action. Johnny's father, Milan, he's an imposing figure. He's demanding of absolute loyalty. So Johnny has to avenge his brother's death. This is something that he he almost has to do to step up, to prove himself as Ivan's uh, successor in the family. But Johnny, he's not convinced that Milan has has got the right killer. Amy, though, she she's always known what Johnny's life was, but she understands that things are, are going up a notch. And she wants out, and she's going to leave with or without Johnny. She'll take Sasha with her. By establishing these competing loyalties, you create this really torn idea of family, like the idea of these books, the violence, the the, the very dubious um, ethical code always seems to be resolved by this idea that family comes first, but you split that. Were you trying to explode that idea of of, I guess, blind faith, which, I mean, let's be honest, that, that whole idea of blind faith to a an organisation, a family, a cause, that seems to be at the heart of our increasingly partisan world. Mm. That's actually very interesting that you bring that up because the core idea behind this novel was the question, can you change your destiny? And... That's basically what, what I was asking my two protagonists all the way through, particularly Johnny, of course, because he was born into a crime family. You know, it, again, if you're going to you bring in, in The Godfather, you know, the Corleones were a, a crime family from Sicily operating on the streets of New York. The Novaks are a crime family from Croatia operating on the streets of Sydney. So they've got this incredibly tribal um, uh, hierarchy. And when you're born into a crime family, you have a very different kind of upbringing to the rest of us. Uh, you know, like we might be, I don't know, learning to ride bikes and um, uh, uh, play video games and stuff. And, and, and they're, not, they're learning how to set up protection rackets. Because organised crime is all about protection. And they're also learning how to use all the guns in the family arsenal and they're learning about blind faith and learning about, um, you know, there's a whole cycle of violence and, and, and ingrained uh, belief systems like violence is the answer, it's always the answer. And I just wondered if someone born in that life could ever break free of it or do they have to exit in a coffin and similarly with Amy you know she's a nice middle-class girl she was destined to marry a lawyer or a doctor or something and she ends up marrying a gangster I mean she really flipped her destiny around um can she help Johnny move away from what appears to be 
the only path forward for him or not? And that's that's a real question. And I guess one of my kind of core beliefs is that you know you have a choice every day to change what you do next. It's interesting. So, you know, that I wondered. Who, I wondered who would win. <laughs> I uh, wondered which, which way Johnny would go. You know. It's interesting that you talk about how far away that that sort of crime family experience is from our everyday growing up. But I really wonder. I mean, perhaps you're growing up, and perhaps my growing up at our age. But for you know, kids these days, teenagers these days, people in their in their early twenties, we hear about this process of radicalization. You know, the the idea was introduced about a decade ago, and it was it was happening to other people who were doing things in in other countries. And now we understand that mm. it's something that's happening online. The the pandemic supposedly increased our time online and increased our likelihood that we would be radicalized. And it really sounded like you were talking about a mm. radicalization process where you you learn absolute loyalty and fidelity to an idea and a cause and it is really fascinating i want to i want to take us maybe a little bit later to where sasha fits in with this but let's let's get a little bit to that violence because you write good violence and by which i guess i mean you write bad violence like violence is bad but violence is this it's this inherently problematic driving force in thrillers and action like you can't have a thriller or an action novel without violence, but it's always driven by these issues of power and inequality. Now, one way that that's enacted in The Second Son is power and violence by men against women, uh, either implicit or explicit. How do you balance or how do you try and balance violence with its consequences? Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that is uh, a good question. Uh, or, or even if you don't, I mean, does I does, guess- does having consequences <laughs> does that complicate just a good gripping narrative? Well, absolutely, it does. And you know, there are consequences to every action. Uh, something I heard about um, years ago was that you know, men men grow into a sense of consequence. That part of their brain starts to develop later in life than the women. Um, women generally tend to have a sense of consequence arrive some, somewhere in their early to mid-20s, and for men it can be a bit later, which is why we were able to send them off to war and to go out and get the woolly mammoth and bring it home, right? It's essential to the survival of our species. But, <laughs> and, and, you know, it's essential for procreation as well. Um, but yeah, I think often women can see the consequence of an action uh, before a man can. <laughs> I challenge any woman out there who sees their husband in the kitchen, for instance, cooking something, and they love the fact that their husband's in the kitchen cooking something, and that they can also see like, oh, that's going to cause a really big mess for me to clean up, you know. And look, vice versa. I'm being general. I'm generalising here, but. I'm going to go back to the whole um, panting theory because learn, this was the, a book where I learned to write a book while I was writing the book, right? And, and one of the things I learned along the way was that you have to, um, uh, you have to open the door to the, of the prison for your, for your um, protagonist, but you then have to 
you have to continue to complicate their lives. They have to come up with plans and then you have to create complication and then things have to go wrong and then more things have to go wrong. So the whole process of writing this book, which happened organically, I would, whenever I got to a point like what happens next, I would write down 10 things that could go wrong next. And then I would pick the one that made me laugh. So it then became, and was it the most violent option of what could go wrong next? Sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. But it was the thing that piqued my interest. Like, what if this happened next? How would that affect my characters? And it had to be true to what I felt was their story arc. But Johnny is seeking the approval of his father. He's always been the one who sits in, in his in his brother's shadow and his 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 father is always reserved his pride for Ivan. Uh, and Johnny wants that. He wants that glow of pride. Mm. And uh and, and Amy just wants to keep everyone safe. So they both have very different desires running running through the book. But Amy's hiding this really dark secret and and she does that very well um and meanwhile she is becoming stronger and stronger and i i like to think that by the middle of the book you're starting to see a kind of almost a reversal of the patriarchal society that i'm describing um you know it's a gang they're croatian it's patriarchal right but um milan uh and branca the parents of uh johnny novak you know, they, they lead this quite, you know, patriarchal family. And Branca's role is to nurture and cook, like she cooks, it's her way of showing love, until she gets to a certain point where she's like, no, I am not sitting back anymore. You know, your business has taken one of my sons already, Mila. It will not take the, my other son. And she steps forward and starts. Uh, uh, taking charge as well. And there's a point where Amy states, starts to take charge too. So I think it, it kind of swings around at some point. <laughs> and, and, and the women start, um, uh, owning, you know, their place in the story in terms of, of what kind of violence they're willing to, to perpetrate to, to protect their family. I was interested also in the way violence sort of operates in the second sign or violence operates best with its with its threat and through restraint. There are some, you know, really gripping scenes where where violence is always just beneath the surface. It's also really interesting to see how that power dynamic works between um I guess gendered ideas of violence. The the male characters threatening violence are always taken more seriously and it is really it is really interesting to see that play out because of course that is I guess it, that's a depiction of so much of society as we understand it men have this attitude yeah and perhaps women are not supposed to it's been interesting to me because um, you know we're talking about violence in specifically in relation to the second son right now mm. And I've read a lot of books. I read constantly. It's my favorite sport. I've been reading since before I started school. 
and I discovered crime and action in my early teens. I, I read all the Bond books and then, you know, graduated on to, you know, more action, more crime. And there's a lot of uh, books out there, you know, even much more recently that are way more violent and more violent towards women. And it's starting to swing around like, you know, women writers can be violent towards women, but you better not be violent towards women if you're a man. And then, you know, there's actually a prize now for writing a book where there's no violence towards women. And, um, you know, I do use violence when it it needs to be used, but I, I absolutely agree the implied threat is way more powerful. And, it's funny because I keep being asked, so how did you, how, how do you know so much about guns? And, you know, I did the research. I went to a shooting range. Uh, and what's a nice girl like you doing writing about these kind of violent themes? Well, because I used my imagination and I love crime and that's where my imagination took me. It doesn't mean I'm a violent person. And, you know, the book is, is so much more than that because it is about duty. It is about choice. It is about, it is about a love story. You know, it is about a marriage. Will they get through this together? It's about a woman's, um, desire to protect her 10 year old son against all odds. And, and she has to leave. She'll do that. And it's about a man's desire to protect his family, but also to provide for them. You know, Johnny is not only wanting to get his father's approval, he wants to provide for his family in the only way he knows, which is crime. He doesn't know he can do anything else, you know. He's never had the opportunity. And the way organised crime works, it's, it's very organised. You know, It's all about protection. It's all about implied threat. You know, you're losing control. You actually have to perpetrate violence. If you actually have to kill someone, it means you've lost control. So, uh, you know, it, it's about it's about how that works too. What um, can I ask? What's the name of that prize you mentioned? It sort of sounds like a, a Bechdel test, but for for violence. <laughs> We can look it up later. I'm going to have to get back to you on that. <laughs> that sounds, see, that sounds absolutely fascinating. And that's, that's what yeah. is intriguing because, of course, crime and thriller and the violence that comes with that can have this inherent excitement. But it's when we are forced to confront things. And, I mean, look, the violence in The Second Son, it, it extends beyond the criminal dealings of the various families because the tension between the Novaks and the Vucevic family, who um, the Novaks blame for the killing of Ivan, the Vucevic's blame uh, the Novaks for the killing of their uh, first son, it finds its origin. Yeah. It finds its origin in warfare and tensions from the Balkan conflicts of the late 20th century. What did you want to explore, I guess, with that that intergenerational history of the violence? And did you have to balance sensitivities and in the depictions as you wrote them? Uh, but um, I've always been fascinated by the disintegration of Yugoslavia because. I grew up on the northern beaches of Sydney and we had a lot of Yugoslavs in my high school, Narrabeen High, and uh, they weren't Serbians and Croatians and Bosnians and so on back then. Um, they were just Yugoslavs, right? And they all got along. 
Uh, and it wasn't until that that last war broke out that we Australians started to see that they were actually saw themselves as different people, and they were they were reacting to centuries of violence towards each other. Um, not just that war; it was the war, it was the uh, Second World War, and, and all the wars prior to that. Uh, and you know, Peter managed to keep them all together for a while. And as um, Branko puts it, Peter, the last real prime minister or president of Yugoslavia, he was a communist dictator, but he was our communist dictator, which is why they loved him. And uh, uh, my husband is Croatian. So, and he is actually uh, what inspired me. He is, is the inspiration behind the character of Johnny Novak, which sort of started this whole ball rolling. Because he grew up in those sort of mean, gritty streets of the west of Western Sydney, he was dyslexic. He left school at fourteen, and he was, you know, a bruiser. He was definitely headed towards a life of crime. It's all he knew. Not that his family were criminals, but the the community with whom he hung out with, all his colleagues from that time, are either in jail or dead. I mean, that was his destiny. And, uh, and, and off he set down that seemingly easy path. I mean, he's a hard man. He's a big guy. And when he was in his late teens, he, he made a decision to pivot away from that and to become a sex, a successful businessman, a legitimate successful businessman. And I mean, he couldn't read and he came from a very, very working class family. It was really hard for him to turn his life around in that way and yet he succeeded because he had the hunger and he had the hunger to change his destiny but some of the stories he told me from around that time inspired that character I just extrapolated it out and thought what if you were a Croatian man born into a crime family not just a kind of a criminal community but if your family with the heart of of the gang and how would that change you? How much harder would it be to change your destiny? And, uh, yeah, I guess that's, that's what really prompted me to go down that path towards utilising the Croatian heritage. And then, of course, you've got this wonderful um, uh, inbuilt conflict going on with the Serbians. And, you know, I was talking to, I said it in Liverpool mainly because the vast majority of Yugoslavs settled around that area. It's got a very high population of Serbians and Croatians and um, in doing my research out there, uh, the police you know, they, I would talk to them about, uh, is there still a big problem between you know Croatian gangs and Serbian gangs? Because you know, we hear about a lot of other gangs, right? But the Croatian and Serbian gangs tend to be kind of operating under the radar a bit. I said, are you still having lots of problems? And he said, and he said oh yeah I mean, this is, this is real it's still going on. There is still warfare between Croatians and Serbians. You've only got to go to a soccer match to see that. Let's, let's, it fascinated me. Let's keep thinking then about that legacy because, of course, I don't think it would be giving too many spoilers away to suggest, and, I mean, I'm not, I'm not writing your second book, but one thing, <laughs> one thing that a sequel um, for any thriller is going to explore is the way that violence begets violence. And yes. I wonder then, is it, 
is it something that is on your mind that a, a very, I, I think, a very satisfying area to explore, but also possibly, um, possibly fatal for any kind of action thriller series, mm. is a circuit breaker, a moment where violence doesn't beget violence and people actually begin that process of healing? Mm. Yes. Um, that said, though, you've, there has to be hope. And I think underlying uh, all the themes in, in this first book, The Second Son, is that there is hope. And, you know, it's like that wonderful moment at the end of Quentin Tarantino's true romance where you see them on the beach in the Hawaiian shirt, she's in the bikini, and, you know, there is hope. Um, And I was kind of, I think I was channeling that a bit when I wrote the ending of The Second Son. But then, you know, my... uh, my 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 crime novel brain took over and had to inflict something at the end too that makes you think, oh my god, something bad is about to happen. But you don't know. Will will there be hope? Or of course, there's always hope. <laughs> you have to have hope. I mean, I feel like I, feel I don't like know. I should probably leave it there. We're in, yeah. We're in this. We're in this territory. Whether I'm not sure. Do I? Do I cut the interview and then ask you a question <laughs> after we've kind of rounded it up, or do I just keep talking in the vaguest possible way? What we might do, I, I'll let everybody know. Um, I am speaking with Lorraine Peck. We are discussing the second son. I'm holding it here in my hand. We are discussing the second son, and it is an absolutely gripping thriller that really overturns so many ideas that you have about action thrillers and it it really put me into this incredible uh, space of ideas so Lorraine look thank you so much for taking the time to come on Final Draft. Oh such a pleasure. That's it for this great conversation with Lorraine Peck. Lorraine's novel The Second Son is out now from text. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. And if you subscribe in your podcast app, there will always be a new great conversation for you every week, helping you discover amazing Australian writing. My name is Andrew Popel, and next week I will be back. I will have more great conversations for you from, from Final Draft. And, of course, till then, hope you've got a great book and happy reading. <laughs>